This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, Christopher, it's uh, Joanna Stern. We are on a podcast together every week, and we can't get in touch with you. We've we've checked Twitter. We've tried your phone. We've tried your Gmail. Um, get back in touch. We'd like to tape the podcast this week. Hey, sorry. I... Are you going to call in? Yeah, I'm calling in right now. Okay, bye. Bye. We've got her open. <laughs> From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, what the government is doing to regulate the use of facial recognition technology and all the complicated questions that come up in the process. Later on, I'll talk to Adam Savage, the old mythbuster himself, about his new book and what it's like to be a maker and tinkerer in the internet age. But first, I want to talk about something that's been gnawing at me for the last couple of weeks. As we've talked about in the show, Facebook and Google both recently had these big developer conferences. That's where they bring thousands of people together to talk about all the big stuff they're working on. And one big thing both Google and Facebook focused on over and over and over was privacy. But it's privacy in this weird way. We were all arguing about this on Twitter last week, too, so I figured we'd bring it here. Uh, with me, as always, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Hi, friends. Hi. Hello. Mims, you made it. Yeah. It's so exciting that you're here. Where were you? Oh, really? it's a miracle. Make up a great story and tell us what you were doing. I was talking to somebody about the future of all of our data the fate of the internet and the next Manhattan project. And we got a little bit carried away. And like, we put it like that. Like we forgive you. We forgive you. For <laughs> yeah. I mean, now I'm kind of interested. This is, so you can now, leave again. We're, we're yeah. done here. Yeah. Uh, but okay. So I actually, I, I want to talk about this cause you, you Christopher were, were yelling at me about this on Twitter last week and I've been thinking about it ever since. So, can you frame sort of the two sides of this debate? There was there was these competing op-eds from uh, Mark Zuckerberg in the, the Journal and Sundar Pichai, Google CEO in the New York Times. Google and Facebook are talking about privacy, and they're sort of redefining this idea of how you should think about giving these companies your data. But can you sort of explain, Christopher, kind of what the trade-off here is that they're asking for? Well, it seems like Google uh, wants to give you privacy just not from Google, um, which isn't totally unreasonable. I mean, that's sort of the cynical way to frame it. But at the end of the day, we all have a choice between like how functional are our services going to be, you know, that's directly proportional to how much data we want to give up. And then with Facebook, um, it seems more about their strategic shift to we want to kind of downscale the Facebook experience, if, if that's the way to put it, where we want it to be more intimate. We want smaller groups. So you're going to be giving up less of yourself in that context and be relating, I guess, in a more authentic way was the way that I saw it. But both of these felt like, I'm going to say this wrong, Rorschach, Rorschach, Rorschach. Lots. Rorschach, there you go. Because um, the, the, the interpretations that I saw just were down to whatever someone's uh, level of trust of these companies uh, already is. So, so I would love to whatever, hear your what takes. Said is like everyone saw it differently. I feel like it, we're in it. We're in a really uh, difficult place right now where nobody 
that there's such a profound erosion of trust that um, even when they, I think, try to engage in these acts of public transparency, uh, it, it sort of inevitably misses the mark because people's kind of uh, filter it through a pretty cynical lens. Yeah, I mean, my take, and David, I kind of feel like you were hinting at this in your intro, is like, this just felt like a marketing show for both companies. And when you really look at what the changes that were made, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe Facebook's going to promote their groups a little bit more and they're going to try to force you to more privacy, private messaging and they've done better encryption and made that default. Maybe Google's released a couple of tools that they say now are not as buried. Maybe they're going to release another tool before the end of the year. But like, all of it doesn't seem like some major strategic shift. It just seems like, oh, we should talk about privacy and we're going to market it really well. Right. Well, and it's, it strikes me as neither company wants less of your data, which I actually thought for a long time would be the pitch of like they would come out and say, here is all the data we are no longer going to collect. And it's actually gone the other way where they're both coming out and saying, actually, we still want tons of data. We want all of it. We just promise we're going to be more responsible with it, which is what falls to me on such sort of strangely deaf ears. But I've been reading these two op-eds side by side, and uh, it's very funny to me because Sundar's in the New York Times makes this sort of long, compelling case that Google needs your data in order to make its products good. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's the trade-off that I keep thinking about, where it's like, okay, if I give Google Maps access to my location all the time, there are creepy outcomes of that, but it also means the traffic data is going to be better uh, for me and for everyone. It means I'm going to get better results when I search for restaurants. Uh, It means Maps is going to be better. And it's the same with Search. It's the same with lots of different Google products. Uh, Whereas Facebook's only case for we need all of your data is people want relevant ads. Right. Which just does not work for me. That just does not fly. I just don't don't see that. Don't you just think they need some sort of like basic... level of human like therapeutic intervention <laughs> like really like i feel like what they need is like Im- like imago therapy or somebody to just shake them and be like start making eye statements like just take responsibility for ones like it's why do you have to be such a, an egomaniac yeah, but it's always I mean, about facebook damn it david i think what exactly i mean i think exactly what you're saying is that facebook's just like here's our here's what we do with your i mean it's they're basically and that's what again say like it's marketing like they're explaining their business models right like Right. And, and that was what Sundar, I think, mapped out really well, which is like, we take this information because it makes Google Assistant stronger, and you, but you still have control over all of these things, right? And we're going to make even better controls for you. But at the end of the day, I think, and I was actually having this conversation with Katie Binley yesterday about why we've given Google a bit of a pass in this whole hell-ish nightmare of privacy. And it's exactly mm-hmm. as you just described, right? Because your maps are better, and you use this as a utility, and you know you're giving your location data because... You are using maps versus Facebook when you didn't you thought you were giving your location data to check in someplace. But then it turns out like, no, we've just been following you everywhere. Right. Well, and then I think where we where that trade stops being fair, I feel like is is the question I can't wrap my head all the way around. Right. Because it's like if I am giving you a bunch of my location information in exchange for maps being great and free and better because of my location information. I think I'm actually okay with that, um, as long as there aren't ramifications I don't know about, like giving my data to Cambridge Analytica to you know, give to whoever you want so that they can win elections. But then, somewhere down the road from it makes maps better to it makes the ads better to 
it's data that is just given to anyone who asks for it in order for a company to have leverage and influence elections and what I see in my newsfeed, that's where it falls apart. But it's like where along this line that stops being a good trade-off feels like the big question that I don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if either of you have changed where you feel like it falls in the last few weeks hearing about this. I mean, I think that there are some surveys that Mark Zuckerberg clearly hasn't read saying that people don't actually enjoy targeted advertising, that they find it creepy. I wish I could include this in the show notes. I got a targeted ad this morning that said, uh, it said, uh, old, it was something like it was a t-shirt on Instagram and it was like, old guys born in June are the best. And like, am I on it? And I was like, what? It was a talking ad. No, but that's the voice I used in my head. Uh, that's what the shirt said. The shirt said, old guys born in June are the best. And there was like a samurai on the shirt. It was a black t-shirt. And I was like, this is the most, I was like, this is absolutely the worst. Like this is the nadir of human civilization today. But are you born in June? Yeah. And I am an old guy. So it was like, I was like, well, okay, check and mate. Like you got me with your targeted ad but I hate you and I want to set your app on fire. And I just feel like this is a pretty common experience for people. And so Zuckerberg's argument that like, Oh, targeted ads are going to help you is just dead on arrival. And um, I think that the line is, is if not clear, like it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Like, like you said, David, like maps is more useful. You're using predictive analytics to pop up the destination. I want to go to the moment I open that app great. You know, I'll do that. And if you want to also use that to make yourself incrementally more income, um, that's fine. You know, probably don't talk to me about that because I don't even want to think about it. But, you know, if that is the the only, if that's the transaction that I'm making and, and you want to be explicit about it in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, it just makes no sense at all. But is that for us as users, is that a transaction worth making? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's this new incognito mode in Maps that's coming out. And like, should that just be the default version of Maps for people? I mean, yes, should, it should we be. start demanding more privacy from these companies? Absolutely. I think absolutely it should be the default. And that's the I mean, another thing I read between the lines in Sundar's thing is like, we're going to give you all these controls. And there, there were a couple of good pieces written after Google I.O. Um, about, OK, great that there are these controls, but they're super buried and they're really hard to find. So, yeah, privacy is a human right that requires a lot of work, right? Like right. That, that should be the headlines for all of Privacy is a human right, dot, 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 if you can find it. Yes. Oh, good. That's a good headline. Let's write this piece. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like it's 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 the the defaults, right? Like all of these things are never the default. They're hidden. And, and this even goes to Apple. I mean, Apple's got a lot of privacy controls that are not all that obvious. What I still wonder is if, if it's going to ever change back from like we should trust Facebook and Google to be responsible with our data all the way to we should stop giving our data to Facebook and Google. Because right now they want us to exist in that first place where they're like, give us all your stuff and we'll only do good things with it. And if they can pull that off, that means there's going to be this handful of companies that win enough people's trust that they're going to make even more money because they'll have even more control because they'll have all your data. Uh, But if we start demanding more from them, which I don't know how we're going to do unless somebody makes a privacy-focused version of Google Maps that's even better, uh, then I think things are going to have to start to change really fast. But right now, like if Google can convince people to keep using Maps because they think their data is safe there, it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I've been thinking about as we've gone through this, and I sort of even thought it, like this is where Sundar might go with this, but what was the headline of his piece? The 
like privacy shouldn't be a luxury good or something right. like and that. And so I actually thought we might be going that as like we shouldn't have to pay for these things, right? And so I've sort I have been thinking lately a little bit about would we pay ten dollars a month for Facebook, ten dollars a month for Instagram if it meant no ads, right? We wouldn't, or maybe ads, maybe there'd still be some drags, but we're, we're not going to be as targeted. And so that's, they might not make as much money from it. And a lot of people have put forward this idea and the companies don't like it because they probably won't make half of what they make up for us. Like even just a sliver, they make more than that. Um, and I sort of think about it. I'm like, I wouldn't, I don't think I would pay $10 for Facebook. It's just not that good of a service to me. Instagram, yeah. maybe like you know. I think I would for Google Maps. I would for weirdly. Google. No, so yeah. right. So then you start to look at the real value of what you get from Google. Would we pay ten dollars for Gmail? Yes. Yeah. Would we pay ten dollars for Google Maps? Yes. So. But the problem is, a, whatever a billion and a half people use Google Maps, and surely not all of those people would say yes to that. Is it, but isn't isn't that didn't you? Ju- I mean, haven't you just exactly articulated Apple's value proposition? You don't yeah. pay ten dollars a month mm-hmm. for Apple Maps, let's say, but you pay the Apple hardware premium mm-hmm. because they're the privacy company, and then you don't have to use these other services that you feel hinky about. And, and- that was absolutely the message of that presentation three, four weeks ago, right? Every single one of those services they hire highlighted not only what you're going to pay, not only what you're going to get. Oh, yay, magazines! Oh, yay, TV shows! You're going to also get privacy baked in. We're not going to mm-hmm. know. We're going to know these things. We're going to about your preferences. You have control over that. You ever control over this? Yeah. yeah, I think I think actually what we've landed on is when you think about like with Prime, like Amazon's proposition is like we are going to get you to stay on Prime because we're just going to keep adding more and more little extras. And Apple, it's the same thing, but their extras, you know, they are. Uh, there's some of them are similar to Amazon Prime in terms of like streaming media, but the big one is privacy. It's like, hey, here's your here's your nice little bonus that you get. Don't you feel good about this? Don't you want to remain committed to this ecosystem forever? Yeah, but Apple Maps sucks. So what am I supposed to do about that? Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> So this week, San Francisco became the first city in the United States to ban the use of facial recognition by local agencies through an ordinance that passed, uh, I think, on Tuesday. But it's not the only city considering these laws, and there are likely to be more of them soon. Uh, There are lots of ways to explain the trade-offs and debates here, but I really liked this quote from Tony Montoya, who's the president of the San Francisco Police Officers Association. Uh, Here's what he said. He said, there must be an appropriate balance between those who subscribe to Orwell's Big Brother mentality and those who want to prevent car break-ins and porch package thieves. Which is like, a, it's a nice, it's a perfect framing of the whole thing. Anyway, Tony said that to Asa Fitch, a reporter here in San Francisco. Uh, he's going to explain more about the laws being debated and passed and what it all means for us. Asa, thank you. So, explain the law that San Francisco just passed. Okay, well, it's a multi-part law uh, one part is banning facial recognition by local government departments, including the police. Um, like flat state, like a ban on facial recognition is a, is a big statement. Is it that sort of broadly defined? Anything that is facial recognition is banned. It's a flat out ban of the use of facial recognition by government departments. Okay. Um, not private private businesses, but government departments. Okay. Including the police. Right. Okay. So that's one part. What's the other part? The other part is the the city wants a review, uh, a capability to review any proposed acquisition of surveillance technology by 
government departments as well. So, you know, if the, if the police department wants to buy a new sensor that detects bullet uh, or you know gunshots, uh, they will have to bring that before the Board of Supervisors, which is the legislative body that oversees the city, uh, before they're allowed to purchase that technology. Okay. That also feels really broad. It, it is pretty broad. And part of the reason they they say they wanted this law is they wanted a, a, a broad kind of say in, in how departments uh, you know, buy this technology, what they do with it. Um, right now, they say that they don't have any even oversight. They have no knowledge, really, of what these departments have currently, uh, and that's that's troubling to to some people or some members of the of the board. Okay. Well, what so, are, okay. Yeah, Talk I was just going to ask, what are like some use cases where this, like, we now know from this ban, things won't be able to happen? What are things that are just not going to happen now because of this ban? Okay, sure. Like, um, you know, police body cams that. Uh, can recognize people's faces. So, you know, let's say you many years ago had your driver's license picture taken, or you uh, were arrested and you had a mugshot. Uh, those now can't be compared to uh, you know video that police are taking, mm-hmm. and they can't use that to uh, you know find or arrest somebody they're looking for. Uh, so. That's that's just one example. I mean, there there are many would, others. You know, you might have. One thing I was wondering was, would schools be one of them? Like, sure. I mean, schools. But that, but are if a school was if it was a public school that wanted to use some form of facial recognition for you know making sure people who are entering the school are children and not I don't know someone who's a stranger or something like that. Would that apply here or no? Uh, yeah, that would apply to city schools. I mean, it applies to all city departments. Um, so any, you know, the city education department, the city police department, the city transportation department, all of those departments are kind of subject to this this ban on facial recognition and this surveillance review. Um, and, you know, some people uh, oppose it. You know, they say it's uh, there are beneficial uses of, uh, of facial recognition and, and this goes too far. You know, they, uh, some people are sort of in the middle. They say, uh, you know, the technology is not perfect. We should put a moratorium on it for a while. But... You know, we shouldn't outright ban it because uh, there are some beneficial uses, like potentially the one you described. So, okay, so actually, let's let's back up a little bit here because it seems like, like I, I can sort of understand the tension on both sides of this, right? It's like facial recognition would help solve some crimes. That seems probably true. Facial recognition is also like very invasive in lots of ways. That seems also true. But what seems to have been happening so far is that facial recognition is being used in some of these ways that you're describing. We don't necessarily know that it's like I, I can't. I was reading a lot about this and can't quite figure out. Like it seems like some police departments are using it, some governments are thinking about it, but we don't necessarily know how it's being implemented. Is that true? Like how much is facial recognition out there in the ways you're describing now? Yeah, it's there are a lot of unknowns around it, and police departments and others have just started to use it without asking uh, for permission in many cases, and so. Uh, you know, you've seen many uh, many states and many cities uh, kind of deciding to harvest the uh, photographs they have from mugshots, other things, and and use them to identify suspects. And there 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 really hasn't been a law in many places that would require any disclosure of the acquisition of that technology. And so these departments, in many cases, have not disclosed it. Um, and that, to some people, is uh, you know, problematic. So it's one of those basically like there's no regulation 
yet, so we don't even have to talk about it or get permission for it because there's nothing to get permission for because this is all happening so fast, governments haven't even really thought about it yet. Right. I mean, people, it, it's, it's what often happens with technology, right? You know, people start using it and uh, at some point, concerns are raised about it potentially and, and then the regulation starts. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a case where people regulated something before it started to actually happen. And so I think we're, we're kind of in that, in that stage now where uh, this technology is becoming more prevalent and, and so people are actually starting to see it more and starting to raise questions about it and starting to think about regulating it. That's also a really hard thing in like where we're headed with this technology is that for this to get better, like any technology has to be used and, and tested and beta tested. You don't want it to just roll out without that, but how else do you do that when you can't have pilot programs or have, you know, one small office testing something in a limited run. This ordinance basically prevents departments from doing that. The, the police actually had tested uh, some of this facial recognition right, technology. Clearly, this is something the departments do. Before they adopt a technology, they test it out and see if it's going to work. Um, this prevents that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I suppose that you could uh, see a situation where a company... Um, you know, came forward with some statistics and some, you know, metrics of their own technology and, you know, was able to convince the the authorities in San Francisco to roll back this ban so that, the, you know, department could buy it. Um, you know, and that's one thing that, that that's one way that uh, proponents of this ban answer the opponents of it who say that there should just be a moratorium. They say that, you know, if there comes a time when facial recognition is viable, they can simply pass another or- ordinance that would uh, allow it. Um, kind of takes the teeth out of a ban, right. doesn't it? To say, no. well, eventually we'll unban it. <laughs> what do you think about the critiques that um, it, it's it's silly to ban facial recognition because the real problem is uh, that there is widespread video surveillance and that footage, uh, you can identify all kinds of things in that footage. So like one thing that people don't appreciate is uh, we have AI all over the place that's identifying people's um, license plates. And, um, you know, it's like a biometric for cars. Um, you can identify people's, uh, you can identify them by the way that they walk. Um, you know, you could ban facial recognition and just channel all of that energy into other ways to uh, track people. Right. I, I, I think that proponents say facial recognition is just especially pernicious because, you know, you can't hide your face in public. Um, you can't change your face. And in many cases, you don't know that your face exists in some database. You know, it's not like you're, you, you know, you, you, you put your fingerprint down and you know you, your fingerprints were taken. Um, Have these people you know, not when seen you, Mission Impossible? I was just going to say all <laughs> those, of my references for this are, are Tom Cruise movies. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> Ethan Hunt has done all of those things. <laughs> Okay, before we get to Adam Savage, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned. Every week, one of us brings some weird thing we discovered that may or may not have anything to do with a story that we're working on. Uh, this week, somebody somebody asked me what I learned about my sunglasses this week. What did you learn, David, about your sunglasses Thank you. this week? That was such a great job, Joanna. Uh, so, okay, so I tested these things called the Bose frames, which look kind of like a normal pair of sunglasses, but have uh, are basically also a pair of headphones. And... They don't go into your ears, but they they create, I think Bose calls it something like a personal sound environment. Uh, And I thought there was no way this was going to work. But I've been 
learning about how Bose is doing this. And it turns out that it's actually working on basically a way to use microphones and speakers to create a sphere of sound and then use the pressure created by the transducers that are putting out the sound to use other speakers to put out opposite pressure and cancel out that sound, which means that it's able to basically say, we're going to have sound in a box about the size of your head that you'll be able to hear. And then anything outside of that box, the audio just simply won't go because it's being canceled out as it leaves that space. Uh, And so what that means is these glasses, you put them on and you can hear the audio as if you're wearing headphones, as if it's you know, a speaker attached to your face, but anybody outside of your little realm can't hear them. And the frames don't work perfectly. It's like, you know how the people wear ear pods on the train and you can hear their music out of their ear pods if you're sitting right next to them. It's kind of the equivalent of that. And it's like a little bit the worst if you're in a quiet place next to somebody. But if you're out in the world, if I even hold the glasses, you know, two feet away from my face at arm's length, I can't hear them anymore. Um, And so Bose has this theory that this technology is going to mean they can do things like put uh, speakers into hats or necklaces and create (laughs) these little sound bubbles around your head so you can hear things without wearing headphones. Uh, And the more why why do we why are headphones so terrible? I thought headphones were perfected. No, headphones are terrible. The problem with headphones is you have to wear them in your ears and you look like an idiot and you can't hear anybody and nobody knows. So so a Bose bowler hat is better? Yeah, dude. I'm really looking forward to my Bose necklace. Tip of the morning to you. Top of the afternoon, whatever it is. Would you like my diamond necklace from Bose? (laughs) That's not a diamond, actually. It's a microphone. (laughs) Sorry. Please continue to try to sell us on this. 14 carat microphones. Call us for marketing ideas. Yeah, this is this is all going to work. I think a 14 carat microphone is is really a a billion dollar idea waiting to happen. Uh, But no, so the the idea is basically: what if you got all the upsides of headphones, but a you could still hear the world, b you didn't have anything dangling in your ears, and c you didn't have the social weirdness of people having to talk to you with headphones in because you would still be able to hear them even if you're listening to your own music at the same time or whatever. So it, to me, it starts to solve a bunch of these sort of weird social problems with wearing headphones all the time, which seems increasingly like what people want to do. I mean, I see... Except the new social problem is you don't know if somebody's listening to something while they're talking to you because you no longer have the signal of, oh, at least they have headphones in. Like, I know this is a pretty obvious signal. Right, like it's... it's, Right. If you go order your coffee and you have your AirPods in, they like look at you like you're like... Like they're waiting, they're waiting for you. Like I could be recording this podcast while walking around and just muting myself, having conversation with somebody and then clicking over and then like neither side would be the wiser that I'm like half checked out on both counts. Maybe it's like (laughs) the headphones need a sign that's like, you know, sort of like a recording sign. Like I'm, I'm, I, you, I'm, you can talk to me right now. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the, the Google Glass thing where the you could never tell if the camera was recording or not, and so yeah, it freaked people button. out because you just learn to assume everybody's always recording. Right. Like the, the social signals there are just weird. And something that means at least, even if I can also hear my podcast, I still can hear you while you ask me what I want at Starbucks. That seems like a victory. Uh, and the tech works better than I thought it was. Uh, and, and it's apparently relatively straightforward audio science, at least according to the people at Bose who... It tried to explain it to me about 12 different ways before I started to understand it. It sounds super cool. Yeah. I mean, we should all try it. Yeah. 
in you should. And they look like sunglasses. sunglasses. They're like yeah. kind of big, thick sunglasses, but they kind of look like sunglasses. Can I just point out that like suddenly uh, our head is becoming a uh, a platform that is going to require... Uh, we're just going to have to cram a lot in there because also I thought that m- my sunglasses were going to be reserved for my AR goggles. So like how much more do we have to stick onto well, think, my temples? I think that they will like your AR glasses will have this technology built in. Yeah, it's going to be both. You won't have to, because by the time if you're things, wearing you AR glasses wear and headphones, right, exactly. Right. But yeah, I'm down. Think it's about it. If you're wearing your shirt that says old guys are born in June plus this, <laughs> you're going to look awesome. <laughs> oh my God. That's we have to buy Mims that T-shirt now, Joanna. Oh no! All right, Mims. <laughs> Thank uh, you. All right, coming up in just a second, my interview with Adam Savage about how builders and tinkerers made the world we live in, and what it means to be one of them as the world becomes more about laptops and code than hammers and nails. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. I first started watching Adam Savage make stuff on Mythbusters, the long-running show where he and co-host Jamie Heineman built huge flamethrowers and boats made of duct tape and like weirdly impressive ping pong ball cannon. Uh, Adam's also been a model and prop maker on movies you've probably seen, like The Matrix Reloaded and Star Wars Episode Two. Don't blame him for either of those movies, though. The models are cool. Uh, He also has a new TV show coming out later this year called Savage Builds, and he has a new book called Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. The book's all about what it means to be a maker, a creator, a tinkerer. It's full of these big life lessons and really small tips about how to fill in checkboxes. It's a fun read, and I really enjoyed it, but it made me think. In the early days of the computer era, it was makers and builders like Adam who were physically with their hands putting together the tech that now runs the world. But now it feels like everything's so abstract. It's all just in code. So what does being a maker mean when everything's an app now? Earlier this week, I went to Santa Cruz, California, where Adam was having an event for his book release. One thing he talks a lot about in the book is his obsession with recreating props from movies he loved. He's been doing this for decades. And it made me wonder, what was it like to tackle one of those projects before you had the internet? It was, it was really hard. Uh, the first Blade Runner gun that I replicated was in 1986 in New York City. I had gone to see it at one of... New York had, at that point, five or six or seven art house theaters that were running, you know, David Lynch film festivals sure. just all the time. And Blade Runner was playing at the Thalia, and we went and saw it. And my buddy David at the time, who was so obsessed with Star Wars, his high school bedroom, he named it Davy's Light and Magic. That's amazing. <laughs> and Davey had made a Blade Runner blaster that didn't wasn't really accurate in terms of uh, any of the surface details, but it had a similar profile and it had a he built a flash bulb into the end of it. So when you pull the trigger, it oh, that's good. That blew my mind. And so we, I was living with him at the time in Hell's Kitchen on fiftieth, fiftieth uh, Street and Eighth Avenue. 
And we grabbed a, a VHS of Blade Runner, and I literally was freeze-framing the VHS tape and making sketches. Wow. That was how I did my research for The Shape of the Barrel. And I still have that pistol that I built. It's like quick play, quick pause, and it's, new yeah, sketch. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, you found later on when I re-replicated the Blade Runner blaster, which would this, at this point be 1995, um, still no internet for to speak of. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had a, 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 a sort of fan fan culture store called Heroes World on Clement Street in San Francisco. And they, they had had a Blade Runner blaster, but they had sold out of it. But they had a magazine of a Japanese builder who'd made one exactly perfectly. So I used that reference material and scratch built my second one. Although because I didn't have a size reference, mine was 20% too small. <laughs> okay. Because um, you're just looking at a picture, no I, like banana for scale or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. Okay. And even today, I, I am regularly off in my size estimates by usually 20% too small <laughs> because I haven't accounted for the parallaxing of the camera. Oh, and even a dis Even a you know, third, 20 degree angle, a couple of inches can make a massive difference in your reference points for the sizes of what you're replicating. Um, Suffice to say, it was really hard. You had to find people who had castings. You had to get, you know, trade information at shows at like uh, Star Trek conventions. You'd run into fellow geeks, comic book stores, yeah. zine stores, you know, you, and I had a network of people. There was a guy I knew who made beautiful lightsabers out of Texas for a pretty reasonable deal. And there was a, another guy who made, you know, uh, forbidden planet guns. Uh, but that was like, you found these people through zines and like through other friends and called them up. There was no, no, just emailing them. <laughs> and now it's just YouTube. You just go on YouTube and somebody now else it is has tried YouTube. It and... It's still hard to find information on esoteric stuff. Okay. Um, is there any part of that that gets less fun as tech makes oh, it easier? No, no? Okay. not at all. Cause there's still, okay. I'm replicating major Kong's survival pack from Dr. Strangelove. That's one of my props. And there's the little six pill bottles, which you can see again in the traveling Kubrick exhibit. Um, try searching pill bottles on Google. <laughs> it is the most nightmare signal to noise ratio of Fair. one. Yeah. Uh, so I started dram bottles. I started searching uh, perfume bottles, perfume samples, uh, you know, uh, apothecary, uh, esthetician, scent, every, every, everything I could think of of anyone who would use this and struck nothing, 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 nothing. Then I ordered some bottles because one of them looked kind of like it. And I ordered a, a, some cheap on Etsy and they came and I was looking at them. And as I started to do more research, and this was dumb of me not to start this way, I realized that there's a taxonomy of bottles oh. and that they are taxonomized by different features. And one of the most important features for the taxonomy of a bottle is its lip shape. So then I went looking at bottle lip shapes and realized that the lip size, so I'd figured out that the bottle size was one dram. Okay. Uh, then uh, I realized that the type of lip was called a patent lip. And when I, typed into Google patent lip one dram bottle. It was like Rumpelstiltskin. I cracked <laughs> the spell and I was met with hundreds of pages of the exact bottle I was looking for with the precise top. And it was, it was zero to a hundred with one search term. That, that I still get the endorphin rush telling that story. That's, that's pretty cool. So, okay. So I, the thing that most resonated with me with in the whole book was the stuff about lists. Cause I'm, I'm so obsessive about lists in the same way that you are. And uh, I have spent, I don't know, the better part of a decade using like every digital tool for yep. list making and stuff None that I can. And I always wind up back at notebooks. So I wonder like, 
Are you an app guy at all? Like all the stuff in your books is like sketches and stuff. Like, I are am you, an app guy. I use Evernote. Okay. Um, Jamie and I have Jamie and I did some stuff for advertising for Evernote way back when. So we have some equity in the company, and uh, I've been using it ever since. And I really like the fact that it's seamless between my phone and my and my computer. So I use that for actually a good portion of my lists. But you're still a I, pen and paper guy. It seems I like. am a pen and paper guy. I use Google Docs for archiving the costumes mm. in my collection. I have over 70 with every single part, piece, and bit and bob from each costume photographed, allocated, given a serial number, and with all the information about it, where I got it, whether I think it's 100% accurate, whether I might rebuild it someday. Uh, is all that's in Google Docs. Mm-hmm. So I can, uh, when I'm talking to people who might want to borrow a costume, I can literally send them the link to exactly nice. what okay. they need. Um but I've always been a pen and paper guy. I love when I have a busy month, even though I use Calendoo, which is a very dense comp- <laughs> app sure. for, for, for looking at your schedule. I still need often to sketch it out in, in longhand and just fill in what happens. So I really get a, a physical feel for the layout of days. And when my boys were, I have 20 year old sons, twin boys, um, when they were in school and we were signing up for summer camp every summer, that had to be done with pen and paper. There's just no, because you're constantly moving parameters around you. There still is no productivity app that can quite do that to the level of granular attention that I need. But I I just was reading something that said every productivity app is competing with you emailing yourself. (laughs) That's very true. Yep. It totally is. Yeah. I'll pick up a notebook from 10 years ago, a sketchbook, and I'm like, oh, I don't remember drawing that. Oh, I remember writing that list. And the thing is, is that it's when I write a list down. Partly I'm putting it down to memorialize it so I have it and I can see the shape of whatever I'm listing. I can kind of understand it's real, the scope and parameter of it. And the physical act of writing gives me that way more than any digital tool. But also I'm physically putting it into my body by, by making my body write it. Yeah, and it's the act of writing that winds up being the important thing. So that's actually a perfect segue into one of the, the things that uh, I'm curious about after having read the book. Would young Adam growing up now, instead of building things, would you be learning to code so you could go work for ILM and do special effects? You know, it's funny that you ask that. I have many friends at ILM who were in the model shop as physical model makers that retrained at Mm. ILM to become digital modelers. And to the last, while they admit that it is a little bit less fun than getting your hands dirty, that it activates all the same creative centers. Really? I find it just as satisfying. Um, That's good, because that's one of the things I wondered is like, is that... Are we losing something I, in that? Yes and no. I mean, I lo- I'm loath to say yes. For me, I need the physical contact with the world, but I'm that's how I recapitulate the world is through my hands. Um, a, a singer is doing that through their voice and a filmmaker is doing it through the, on the, at the editing bay. And you know, each of these, we don't choose these mediums, they choose us. And when you have, I mean, one of the great things that the digital age has done is it's lowered the threshold of access to so many more people. Um, you don't need Pro Tools to mix some sick beats. You can do it yeah. in GarageBand and it's 99.9% as great. You have less control, but you know, again, these tools are being made available to more and more people, which means we see more and more variety. And for me, that's a net good. And on that same front, 3D printers are one of the things that, that you, you touched on a few times in the book, but kept I kept thinking about it. And I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, 
everybody, me included, being sure that 3D printers were going to be in everybody's house. You'd have two of them. They would make all the things that you needed. It would be the greatest sort of tinkerer invention ever. But it doesn't seem like it's gone that way. What people have learned is that every 3D printer takes a bunch of maintenance. And it's a new technology, which means it was, for the longest time, uh, very spotty, very touch and go. You know, one version of a printer might be great. The next one might be shite. Um, however, what I get excited about is not the idea of 3D printers being replicators. I get the, I get thrilled about the idea of a generation of digital natives being able to take this technology and move it out of the realm of rapid prototyping and into the realm of rapid manufacturing. Because I would love nothing more than to buy my next iPhone case from a kid down the street that's built from his point of view to my needs and we have a relationship. Um, some of the most hmm. fertile uh, uh, and satisfying commerce-based relationships that I get to enjoy are with people that I collaborate with and commission through sites like Etsy or DeviantArt or that I find on Twitter. Uh, that to me is gets really exciting. I mean, it just seems like by the time you get to CAD plus 3D printing, it's like on the one hand, you've just simplified monstrously difficult processes into In one theory, thing. In theory, you've simplified, yes. In theory, that's fair. And and I, I think really so it starts with cad and cad still sucks like cad and everyone <laughs> really does it. suck autocad is i'm oh, sorry autodesk is really working hard to lower the threshold of entry to cad cam and that's vital if this is going to work um everybody's working on i mean the moment apple put two uh cameras on their phone it told me they're working on ar and photogrammetry in in 10 years are you going to be building stuff in ar as opposed to in a in a shop like i, I you, does it matter that. to you i doubt that okay. i prefer the piece i prefer the piece of the bench and the noise of the tool uh, i've toured around the country over the last uh seven or eight years a bunch with different stage shows frequently uh I would call them during their dinner, which was me getting out of the show on the East Coast. And my wife would put the laptop on Skype and I would eat dinner in my bus oh, wow. while my kids and my wife were eating dinner at the dining room table. And if it really, there was no, I hate talking on the phone and I hate talking on the phone. I have this whole theory about it that I've never fully elucidated that it's all about the latency. But when you have body language, when you can see people, it's much more intimate. And that is, that's really impressive. So to me, the idea that I could see my wife sitting on a couch next to me while we chat about the day, that gets me really excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and especially for, for you as someone who seems to love the community aspect, like it's very instructive that you started by like building theater sets uh, and that that was a part of your sort of formative experience instead of like working in a shop alone. It becomes a thing you do with other people right. very quickly. And I feel like that, that's a really interesting point. And that it's to true. me is the interesting thing about what's happening now where we're spending so much time sort of sitting at computers and coding. It's like, it's, it's just communal in a very different way yeah, that but I, I, I mean, wonder People about. are getting out. There's more and more small cons moving around the country. That's true. There's more and more places for people to go find their, their folks and to exercise their, their wonderful, weird freak flag. Um, you're right that theater is a deeply communal uh, and community-oriented exercise. And that's one of the things I really love about it. I like to point out to people that theater is the first art form that will survive an apocalypse completely intact. Like the morning after, whoever's left, five or six people, they're going to get around a campfire and tell stories. That's really good. And that's a form of theater. Did you ever read the book Station Eleven? No. Uh, it's about a theater troupe after the end of the world. Uh, Fascinating. And it's wonderful. It's a really great book. Oh, yeah. And, I would totally be in that theater I highly troupe. recommend reading. Yeah, I think it, <laughs> uh, that tracks for me. So what, I mean, as you look towards kind of the next, I don't know, phase of technology, like is there stuff other than what we've talked about that's that's interesting to you? Like are you... 
waiting for the Apple Pencil to get really good because it'll make your life easier. Like, what <laughs> I, kind of actually, stuff is I there? love the Apple Pencil. I just wish the apps would pick it up. AR is definitely really exciting to me. Um, the 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 again, the lower and lower cost of entry for digital filmmaking tools is thrilling. Um, the fact that you can get a gimbal now for like twenty dollars is yeah. astounding. Uh, go, you know, the ad when we started making MythBusters, there was no GoPros. Oh wow, yeah, right. Like that would have made your life a lot easier. Just dropping a camera meant that you lost the last three seconds because that was the buffer in the <laughs> right. DV cams. So it, it was a complete nightmare. We had to buff, buffer everything. Um, yeah. Uh, Look, when when you ask me about future technologies, I think the one that's going to save the world, sure. right? Which is the worst plan in the world is that the technology is going to save this world when all <laughs> we need to do is actually stop using the technology that we're using. I love the fact that in, in Seven Eves, Neil Stevenson has, has he takes you through 5,000 years of future Earth history. And there's this long reset where humanity builds itself back from nearly zero. And once they built back to some reasonable populace 5,000 years later, they didn't reintroduce smartphones. Even though they had access to all the same technology, they were like, yeah, that didn't work out so well for us the first time. And I'm like, ah, that's Neil editorializing and I dig it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, as I look towards the future and I, I think about this difficult time and I'm genuinely scared all the time. That is like, I'm in abject terror uh, because I think that, you know, we're burning this place from the inside and it's terrible. Um, and I, I talk about it using my platform. I donate, I do research. I, I, you know, I'm working towards the good and I also have to just be doing what I do, which is tell the stories that I want to tell. And, you know, the, the older I get, the more those stories become about passing on the knowledge that you have and building a community around you and keeping that community really strong. If we make it out of this, it's because we built strong communities of people that felt seen and heard and were listening to each other and really understanding each other's experience. Uh, anything else is simply uh, digging a hole that's constantly filling it. Adam's book, again, is called Every Tool's a Hammer. Life is what you make it. It's out now. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Adam, Asa, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.